Just a short, simple verse this morning, uh, and in, in full disclosure, somewhat topically handling the subject of that verse to deal with something we started on just a couple weeks ago. If you remember two weeks ago, we were in 1 Thessalonians 4. We looked at verses 1 through 8. And 1 Thessalonians 4 is a clear declaration of God's will for the lives of believers. Not comprehensive, but clear in that this is the will of God for your life, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That this is, he says, your sanctification. This is something that sets the church apart from the world. And in times like ours, that is very clear. It's very necessary. Uh, It is something that our society uh, is no longer hiding in sexual morality, but fully embracing as identity and declaration. As we read last week in Romans chapter 1, that God, in grace and kindness, gives people over to their sin to declare to the world the judgment of God. And when they harden their hearts against Him, then He often in His hand justly allows them to live into their sin. And the danger for us in living in such dark times, as we talked about last week, is that we would contrast ourselves with the darkness of society rather than the holiness of God. That we would convince ourselves, as long as we're not dark as society is, we're okay. And we fall into a theology that is every other religion besides Christianity, that I just have to make sure my works outdo the rest of the world. I have to land on the right side of the bell curve. If they're very unholy, then it's easier for me to be holy. But as we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians, or a couple weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians, the declaration of God is that His people long to please Him, not just to contrast the world, but to honor and glorify Him. That He, the God who will judge all, is also, as 1 Thessalonians reminded us, He who has given us the Spirit, has empowered us to live for Him, and has proclaimed what is good and what is true and what is right. And so when we look at life and we look at morality and we look at even uh, sexuality, those things that we would call sexually immoral, we need to contrast ourselves not before the world, but before God. As He is holy, we are called to be holy. As He has sent His Son to die for us, we are no longer enslaved to sin. And we say frequently that the presence of sin remains, but the power of sin and the penalty of sin has been lifted from his people. But we live in a time where that is very difficult to see. It is very difficult to see the reality of the power of Christ when you are constantly subjected to what the world declares. It's difficult. It must be something we battle for. We must recognize, as Paul said, don't forget the instructions in Christ that we gave to you and that you were desiring to follow. This is your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so two weeks ago, we looked at that and very heavily the reality that Christians are called to 
uh, abstain, that they're commanded, they're empowered to do so, they long to please Christ. And so the, the sense of that message was basically stop it. Just stop, right? Don't do it anymore. The, the physical things of life, yes, our hearts will be compelled to sin. But as Jesus said, whatever is compelling you to this sin, whatever is putting temptation before you, cut it off, flee from it, run from it. The effects and the consequences and the reality of what sexual immorality does to a soul, Jesus is very clear, you need to run from this. And we looked at that very clearly in 1 Thessalonians. What I'd like to do this morning is as we put off sin, we're also commanded to put on righteousness. We are commanded to not just stop. God does not just yell at us, stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing. But He compels us. He communicates the truth to us. He tells us that there is a better way. A way that honors Him and glorifies Him. The way that He created for things to work. And in many ways, the way all things will be restored in. And in marriage, the picture of the future restoration of Christ. Well, rather, of His church to Him. And so my my goal for this morning is to spend our time not looking primarily at what we must repent of, but looking at what have we been called to? What, What must we put on? What knowledge, what reality, and what action should follow? I want to do that also in the context of knowing many are plagued by sexual immorality in their life before Christ, and and some maybe even this morning coming to us and gathering with us in their life currently in hidden sin. The Bible is no stranger uh, to the hidden sin of man. He knows us. He cuts to our hearts. And this morning, you might be sitting here thinking, uh, Jake, we're a young family church, so many married couples, older couples. Uh, we don't have a lot of issues with this. We're very low on the singles. This, this isn't a problem. And I want to tell you, marriage is not the solution to sexual immorality. Marriage is a benefit to man. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that you ought to give yourselves to one another that your body does not belong to you, that you may not be tempted. But it is not the solution. The gospel is the only solution to sexual immorality, to repentance and to fleeing from sin. And every year that I've been in ministry, in the nine, almost ten years of our church, and about five prior to that in college ministry, I cannot recall a year where there was not a young man or a young lady or an older married man, or an older married woman, or somebody who falls in between the young and the old, that came and had been living a a hidden life of sexual immorality. Through pornography, through social media, through apps, through meeting up with people, through all kinds of ways. Uh, I have not had a single year of ministry where that, that has not come about. That at some point during that year, someone... And some years have been heavier than others. Uh, some years, just one. But I cannot recall a single year where it hasn't come about. And it is because we are living in a time not quite as bad, but pretty close and moving rapidly toward Corinth and, and Greek culture in general. Uh, but the Corinthian church 
was a church in the middle of, uh, much like California, uh, a city that imports and exports and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of people coming through. And much like Vegas, a reality of what happens here, uh, well, probably in Corinth, not it stays here. They didn't make that promise because they viewed it as good and right. Sexual morality was just normal in family relationships. It would be expected that men would have both wives and mistresses. Sexual morality was celebrated in the worship of false gods and false deities and all kinds of sexual morality going on as the acts of worship in society. Homosexuality accepted as uh, maybe not always the norm, but perfectly acceptable. It was a very pagan society. And while we look at our own society on the fast track to moving in much the same way, that not only a, a limited acceptance, but a broad acceptance and an overall worship that this is good and right and identifies and what satisfies and what makes us who we are. Corinth was light years ahead or behind. And it's in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, that we can have great hope that the darkness of society does not stop the reality of the gospel. I brought it up last week. I want to put it before you again. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. He tells us the truth. He says, Or do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And if it stopped there, it would be such a sad, depressing passage. If he says, These will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you. And so then the end would be, some of you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But it does not stop there. There is a beautiful contrast. He says, and such were some of you, but something else happened. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. The guilt and the sin that was counted as yours was removed. Your mind clarified. Sin made known. You were sanctified. You were set apart. Not just cleansed from your sin, but set apart for God. Made His, promised as His, as Danny read for us in Ephesians this morning. That before time, before creation, that He had purposed that He would call the people to Himself to be His holy possession. You were sanctified or set apart. And you were justified. Not just cleansed, not just your sin made clear to you, not just the fog of the veil of sin removed, but you were justified, no longer guilty, righteous, not set apart to be cleansed later, but counted completely as His. No longer guilty in sin. And how did all of this come about? 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
And so there is great hope, Christian. While Corinth was a society much like ours, and there were many lost and trapped in sexual sin and all kinds of other sin, there is hope that whether you were a cult prostitute in Corinth or a lying, deceitful person who says, I love Christ, but at night and during the day and throughout your life, you are living to find sexual morality and to hide it from those you know. He is not unfamiliar with saving such. He says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. And you likely look at that list and know some of these words could define me before Christ. As an idolater, as a thief, as a drunkard, as greedy, or as the sexually immoral, as those who swindled. But those identities no longer define And so as we consider this, my hope for this morning is a clear renewing of our mind, clarity in the reality of what Christ has created. In a society that worships sex, I'm not going to spend all of our time talking about sex, and I think sometimes Christians champion that. They say, well, we own sex, so let's get explicit about it. And I think what we're often trying to do is match the energy of the culture, the culture that says we worship sex. We worship this pleasure and this intimacy and what it creates and what it does, and it defines me. The Bible declares that doesn't define you. That's a good and right creation of God for a purpose. That it was created for a purpose. And because of that purpose, point number one, marriage is held in honor among all. If you look at your handout, you'll see first... Hebrews 13, verse 4, the first statement there, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, if your, if your Bible was in Hebrew, this statement is not promoted or, or stated in the same way that it looks in our book. In, in our Bible, in translation, it says, let marriage be held in honor by all. And so you might assume that's more of a command, like this is something that must be done. Uh, but in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's actually stated in, in, in an indicative way, which means it's stated in a factual truth way. And so that's good news for us, and that this isn't a command in the sense of you, you need to make this happen. This is a statement of truth of this is reality. Marriage is to be held in honor. But that statement at the end that says by all is what makes that indicative truth or the fact of it also become a command. It's not stated in a command way, you must do this. It's stated, this is what is true. And because it is true, all must do it. And you you know this in your life. Often there are just truths that you need to embrace, you need to hold on to, you need to remember, you need to recognize. And the truth is, marriage is honorable. And it should be held so, by all because of the fact that it is he says marriage is to be held in honor honor means to merit it to give it value to esteem it to respect it to call it excellent he says marriage should be that why 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 is it that marriage should be held in honor and i know many of you You listen to conservative radio or conservative news. You listen to lots of things that would talk about the battle against marriage right now. 
and the destruction of our society because of the attack on marriage, right? And they'll list statistically the, what, what the benefits of marriage are. The stabilizing of society, the stabilizing of people, the stabilizing of homes. When there are homes where there are mothers and fathers in committed relationships, there are homes that are more stable. And therefore, then there is a society that's more stable. The stability, the longevity of life, Right? That statistically, married men live longer. It's probably because they have someone telling them that would be really stupid. <laughs> don't do that, right? Bad idea. Water and electricity don't mix well. Maybe wait. Clean up the water first. Thanks. Thanks, love. That was helpful. Companionship and intimacy. Uh, married people are communicated, though our society would like to say there's satisfaction in sowing your wild oats and living in all kinds of sexual morality. Uh, there is greater comfort, greater contentment, greater companionship, and greater intimacy. Not, I'm not just talking sexually, but in life, in married couples. The blessing of children. Service to one another. Sanctification. Satisfaction, things you all experience in this, all of this is true. But all of this is just temporary. It's, it's, the, it's the benefits of a greater reality. None of those are the reasons in which marriage must be held in honor. All of those are part of, because of its honorableness, its effects on things. But none of those are the determining factor of why marriage is so important. And we can know this as Christians because it is not that marriage is esteemed above all things. It's not that marriage is the highest and the greatest good. It's not that you and your wife and your family is what is eternal and what is forever and what you worship and live for. Because marriage is temporary. Marriage is not forever. It's honor is found in that it declares something better. Its creation and its design is good, and it is right, and it's clear for us. And if you've been at the marriage study, we've looked at it, but I'm just going to brief it very quickly. Genesis 2, 18 through 25, the design of marriage. We see a lot here about God's kindness, His faithfulness, and His purpose in designing marriage. We see that marriage was designed before sin. Remember, Genesis 3 is the fall. Mankind has rebelled against God and sin. Genesis 2 is pre-fall, before rebellion and before sin. And so let's read together Genesis 2, 18 through 25 of the institution of marriage created by God for His purposes before sin ever existed. Genesis 2, 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he was asleep, he took one of the ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We see that without sin, God states it is not good for man to be alone. And so there is something in creation that's not good. It would not be good for man to just be created. Adam, it's not good for him to be alone. There is a helper fit for him. A helper to come alongside him. Not a helper in the sense that Adam almost has it. He just needs a little help. Right? No, a helper in the sense that Adam is insufficient to accomplish what God has purposed him for without Eve. Eve is a necessary help to him. A necessary companion. They have differing roles, but no difference in value. Headship and submission exist in creation. Uh, and the Bible points to this, in that Adam is head. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, 2 Timothy would point us to this is creation. That the design of creation is what creates the roles, or the headship of man, the submission of a wife, before sin in creation. And so there's no conflict, there's no confusion in God's design. Though she is a helper made for him, that does not mean she is inferior. She is equal in value and different in role. She's not just an optional benefit. It's not good if he's alone. She's a necessary completion. She's required to participate in all the same commands to have dominion over creation. If you look at that passage before in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it states clearly for us in the summary of creation that God created man and woman and he created them. The language is very clear. Male and female together created in the image of God. And then the commands of dominion are given that man and woman share in this dominion. That they were created to display the glory of God over all the earth. That all things would be subjected to their care, their keeping, their cultivating of all God has made that he would be declared honorable. Glory and honor would be given to him because they were created to display that. We often think of relationships as battles of the sexes, but there is no battle in Genesis 2. The battle is the creation of sin because of man and Satan's rebellion, not the creation of God. There is no conflict in headship and submission in Adam and Eve. There is no conflict in that one is superior and one is inferior. There is a full embracing of the roles. And I know I'm saying all this in brief and quickly, but I know we've said it recently in community groups, and you've heard me preach it many times. If you haven't, I could point you to many messages where we've taken much more time through Genesis. But what we see is perfect unity in headship, authority, and submission. The uplifting and the encouraging of that authority. 
in a gracious, compassionate, kind, purposed, intentional, sacrificial, life-giving, affection-giving, wanting to exalt the other, for their name to be praised, for them to be honored, for them to be looked at as valuable in both directions. And we have the greatest picture of this that we still can't wrap our minds around in the Trinity. Because Christ fully submits to the Father. And the Father is the head of Christ. And there is no conflict. There is no battle between the desires of Christ and the desires of the Father. There's no conflict of of what is going on here. There is no value difference in that the Father is more valuable than Christ. We cannot picture a world where the sexes are not at battle, but it's because we don't picture a world that exists for God and for His glory. We picture a world that exists for us and for our pleasure. And so, as Titus says, we're at war with everyone. But that would include also in marriage, in relationships, and between men and women. We don't see one another without conflict or confusion in God's design for His glory. We see one another as threats or as opportunities. And that's without sin. Or rather, that's with sin. Uh, Without sin, there is a freedom in that. You see it in the passage. He says that they were naked and unashamed. Now, I used to say they were completely vulnerable to one another. And that is true in our current society. If you were naked, uh, you're completely vulnerable. Uh, But there, there was no vulnerability. There was nothing to be vulnerable in. It wasn't the fact that they were vulnerable. It's that they were completely exposed. They were completely known. Without conflict. Without issue. No shame in it. Because sin did not exist. And, and though man, all mankind, male and female, exist in sin now, and that creates confusion, and we can't understand such freedom and such a reality, there's an intended picture for us of what it was created to be before sin. And he has given us minds that can fight to imagine and to picture what would that be like. And the thrust of that passage, verse 24, is the command. Notice it says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father... And hold fast to the wife, and they shall become one flesh. What is the design and the intent of marriage? Marriage is to be a relationship on earth that is a higher priority than any other human relationship. Adam and Eve did not have a mother and father, right? Like you read Genesis. There's no mother and father there. This statement is made for all who follow. That therefore... A man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This relationship is prioritized both in other relationships. God did not create mother and father in a homeschool family and say, this is God's design for earth, right? For dad to work hard and for mom to homeschool the kids because kids are what life revolves around. No. He didn't create a grandma and grandpa because these will have the knowledge and wisdom to bring everyone around. And and now this is the, the parents of the parents. That's what really will do it. He didn't create your homies so you have your crew or whatever you call them. And now I got my boys over here and then my women over here. No, he created a man and a woman 
And he said, for the rest of creation, this relationship of intimacy is to be the highest priority to those who are in it. All other relationships are left behind, in a sense, because of this relationship. And you might think, well, the design of marriage, I'm not married, I'm, I'm failing in that. I want to quickly encourage you, that's not reality, and, and Christ is a clear expression of that. Christ was not married on earth, and Christ did not fail in the will of God, nor the design or plans of God. He was faithful. So why then is it given such a high priority? Look at Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 33. Paul quotes this same passage. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The exact verse of command in Genesis 2, that this relationship is to be primary, that when a man becomes married or a woman becomes married, all other relationships become secondary to that. Why, why is that? Well, he tells us, he says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That marriage is a temporary picture on earth that is a declaration of the love, the intimacy, the care, the affection, the desire, the want, the closeness, the partnership, the planning, the glory of God revealed between Christ and his people, the bride, forever. Marriage is not to be exalted and honored because it's primary satisfaction to you. It's not to be exalted and honored because of its benefit to society. It's to be honored because God embedded it in creation before sin, that it would be an ongoing picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. That it would be that which declares that Christ has loved his church in an intentional way, planning and purposing from the beginning, that he has sacrificed for her, that he has given himself for her, that he is not bitter with her, but he nourishes and cherishes her that he has left her his word, that he has gathered her into his church for her care, that he has given every provision, every care, every plan, every purpose, because one day he will return for her and she will be forever his, naked and unashamed, free from the burden of sin. Because the design of marriage is really about the declaration of marriage, which is the gospel of Christ. And so it is why the author of Hebrews writes, let marriage be held in honor among all. Not just the married. Among all. That we must all see this as God's design, the supremacy of marriage because it's declaration of the gospel. The unity and the acceptance of marriage because it's declaration of the gospel. The love and the affection of marriage because it's declaration of the gospel. His design was weaved into all creation. That marriage would be a picture even past our sin of his gospel. So not just honored for the sake of marriage, not just honored for the stability of society, not just honored because it's personally satisfying, and not just honored because you're a participant, 
but honored because not just the design, but the declaration of marriage. The second statement, he says, the marriage bed undefiled. The marriage bed, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So if marriage is to be held in honor by all, and then the marriage bed, speaking of the intimacy and the consummation of marriage, we're talking, we just say very bluntly, sorry for those of you that keep your children in church, we're talking about sex. And now you can do your godly duty to explain what that is later. But God's design and purpose in marriage is that there would be a relationship that is closer, more intimate, and, and somewhat unexplainable in joy. Unexplainable in connection. Unexplainable in the way that it binds a man and a woman together. Something that works in such a way that it compels people who have no reason to be together to decide to be together just for that experience in sin. And people who have every reason to be together in their unity and the hope of Christ and their desire for God to be glorified and their want for his name to be praised and their willingness to honor him and please him in all of life and desire to have children who will do the same and who find themselves fighting about what way to enter a parking lot, about what to have for dinner, about what are we going to name our child, about what seasoning goes best on chicken, like on all kinds of silly and foolish things. Have something designed for them that will put aside whatever is keeping them apart and bring them closer together than any two humans should ever get, except people who are married, to be bound, to be one flesh, to honor and to glorify Him. And the difficulty of a society that lives in sexual morality is one, the obvious truth, everywhere it's happening outside of marriage and the marriage bed is immoral and wrong and defiled. And the more difficult truth that many have participated in such sin that they come to the marriage bed confused, ridden with guilt, shame and confusion about its intention and its purpose and its design are confused about the pleasure that it brings because they've sought the pleasure in sin are confused about the purpose of it to bring pleasure to one another and to bring glory to God and to bring closeness of relationship and assume it's just about them and their needs as a human Confused about the reality of God's design because it has been defiled outside. And so first point I want to make the statement here is the marriage bed is undefiled. Christian, whatever guilt and shame you carry from previous sexual sin, there are two answers to that. One, stop it. Stop sexual sin. Stop telling yourself that this has to be done. See the reality that you do not have to take that action and depend and trust in Christ. And if you are married, participate and realize it is undefiled. That the union between a man and a woman in their marriage bed or in our modern time in their bedroom or 
I would go beyond that to say anywhere private. That you would be faithful to see that and to believe God in that, that this is pure. That you would battle and fight to remove any impurity in that. That you would work and seek to know what is it that God has designed this for. That you would let the marriage bed be undefiled in your mind. That you would not see it as something dirty that God permits, but something beautiful that He's created. And historically, this has been a problem for the church. Uh, The reality of sexual sin has perverted many people's minds to think this has no solution. Augustine, in his early years, argued uh, that sex did not exist before creation because he had been so promiscuous and so evil in his immorality. He felt there is no way that this could be righteous and created for God. He had perverted his mind so far, he could not grasp the kindness of God's design in that. His conscience was defiled. And Augustine and others, and then into the Catholic Church, became that what is most holy and most righteous is for someone to remain celibate, to remain free from that. That sex is some kind of permitted evil rather than a precious gift for a purpose. Not the gift, not the only thing, but the most common for man and woman to be in a relationship that has a marital union and there is something designed in the midst of that union that goes beyond all other physical interaction, all other interaction of physical life that brings them to, I'm trying to use my words very carefully, that brings them to one flesh together to display God's glory. So whether it be you view it as undefiled because of previous sin, or, or you just feel like there, there's nothing about that that could be good and right and holy. What we need to do is shift our theology, our belief about who God is and what He's done, and battle to see the truth that He's created it for a purpose. This is the command of Romans, that you would renew your mind, no longer conforming to the world, but be transformed to what is good and acceptable and the will of God. That you would no longer be conformed and listen to the world about the worship of sex and the exaltation of sex and the foolishness of that, but listen to God about its design and its purpose. The marriage bed is undefiled. And then lastly, in our passage, Hebrews 13, verse 4, he says, For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. For God will judge sexually immoral people, those who pervert sexual sin and acts outside of the marriage bed. Sexual immorality is those who use sin in some form, or rather use sex as sin in some form outside the marriage bed. It's kind of a grab bag term for any kind of sexual activity outside the marriage bed. Or the adulteress the one who is in a marriage, or commits sexual sin with someone else who is in a marriage. These cover any sexual act outside of or inside of marriage that is not the marriage bed. And such acts are said they will be judged by God. They are evil, they harm and pervert His creation, and they reject His goodness and His kindness and His will. That fact remains true, but where we started is where I want to remind you 
Do not be deceived by the world. These will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And do not be deceived by some lie within you that says, I can't be redeemed from this. This owns me. This is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. This is who my parents were. It is a lie. It is a lie. The gospel is not bound, not hindered, not stopped by the present state of sin on earth. We know that from 1 Corinthians 6, as we already read. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We know that in 1 Peter, that it says, knowing that if you call on Him who judges all impartially as Father, live your time of stay here in fear, the reality that God judges. And then it says, knowing that you were redeemed from the inheritance of your forefathers, from their foolishness, from their sin, not with the blood of bulls and goats, not with silver or gold, not with things precious to earth, not by programs, not by systems, by the precious blood of Christ. That you are not your own. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your parents. You, if you are Christ, are defined as His. And He redeems from them. First John tells us that He is so faithful and righteous to cleanse His people from all unholiness. And what do we do in response? It says we confess our sin. We agree with Him. We make known, this is true. I once was a sexually immoral adulterer. I once was one who practiced homosexuality. I was an idolater. I was greedy. I was a drunkard. But not anymore. Because He is just and faithful and righteous and redeems His people. He loves His people in a way that can only be, well, maybe not only, but is frequently expressed as a husband, not who calculates how high he can get on the chart. I'm a six. Can I pull a ten? No. A husband who takes a bride who has sold herself into prostitution. A husband who takes a bride who has rebelled and revolted and reviled the name of God. And he purchases her. And he dresses her in honor and glory and makes her his own. Christian, do not believe the lie. Whether this is you or those you counsel, there is freedom from sexual immorality. There's freedom from the burdens and the guilts in which it brings. Because there is freedom in Christ from the presence and the power and the penalty of sin once and for all, but now from the power. You are not bound by this. Singles, I want you to consider the warnings of 1 Thessalonians 4 from last week or a couple weeks ago and the reality of what you should do. And I want you to consider these words in verse 11. And such were some of you. He does not say such were all of you. And too often in our society, I think we surrender to the fact everyone's going to sin in this way. It's just not the truth. 
Not everyone is going to be identified by this. Not everyone, this is who they are. As much as our society wants to scream at you, you are first and foremost a heterosexual or a homosexual or some confused version in the middle. You are first and foremost a creation of God made for his glory to show his dominion over all the earth and to be part of his bride that declares his goodness and his kindness in redemption. Your life will find sin and you must repent. But it does not mean that you must give in to all sin all the time. It does not mean that society defines who you are. And so as you raise your children and you live your life, please recognize, he says, some of you, not all. Do not surrender to the fact that this is the destiny of mankind. We know that is a lie from hell. And married, if you find yourself in that, such were some of you. I just want to give you three points that are my own kind of pastoral desires to encourage you. Number one, on application on the back of your handout, recognize our hope in Christ together, even if our consciences were previously defiled. So there's quite a few verses here. The first two, Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, declare that our consciences have been cleansed in Christ. It says, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Hebrews 9, 14. And he says, how much more? Not a command just of you do this. He says, if the Old Testament system gave a clarity of people of their reality of sin and the goodness of God, How much more does the blood of Christ, which doesn't just give the reality, but removes the guilt of sin, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Lean into the gospel, believe its truth, because it is intended to purify your conscience. Hebrews 10 says the same, verse 22, Let us draw near in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That we then can draw near because Christ has made the payment of the penalty of our sin. We draw near with a full assurance of faith, a true heart, complete hope in him. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. When you consider the conscience, I think the best illustration I've ever heard is think of the conscience like a skylight. And it then is what you receive the truth of what God said this morning. It doesn't change what the light is. It doesn't do any of that. It just either clarifies or clouds what comes through. And your conscience, that understanding of what's right and wrong, what is the will of God, can be clouded, or as the Bible describes, defiled. 1 Corinthians 8 goes on to those who have a defiled conscience. Talks about meat that was offered to idols. And it says there are those who, because they lived in this, or if you look at your handout, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he had, says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says there are some who, because of their previous life and their former association, are struggling, cannot separate the reality that there is no false God. If you go to Sprouts and they say, this meat is grass-fed, 
It has been sacrificed to the gods of vegan... No, not veganism. That doesn't even make sense. Let's just say that for fun. It is holy and righteous because the gods it was sacrificed to. Christian, you don't have to have a conscience issue with that. You go, actually, that was a cow that ate grass, and they all belong to God. And I'm going to take its back quarter, and I'm going to smoke it. It's okay. But should you have grown up in the pagan idolatry that's going on and all those things, your conscience might say, I, I hear that is true, but I can't come to that conclusion. I want you to recognize some things about the weaker brother. He doesn't hide from the weaker brother that his conscience is defiled. Right? This is a public letter. This letter is not written privately to stronger Christians to say, look, there's some who are confused. No, he openly says, some of you are weaker because your former association is messing with your conscience. And he doesn't encourage go against your conscience. What he encourages is the stronger to support and love and to care for and not to push the weaker to do things that would go against their conscience. But he doesn't hide from them the fact that their conscience is what is defiled, not the function. It's not the act. Christian, if you are the weaker brother in this matter, you need to recognize that and then be clear with others. You need to recognize that and be clear with your spouse. You need to have open and honest conversations about where your conscience is and, and what feels defiled and what doesn't, what seems wrong and what doesn't, and seek to be faithful and to depend on stronger brothers and sisters. Not to tell you, you've got to do this or you've got to do that, but to be clear with you of, okay, let's look to God and see what He has said. Sin often plagues our conscience. Point number two, live together by the power of the Spirit, which is harmonious with living by the authority of the Word of God. I'm going to trust your good students of the Bible, and I'm just going to point you here quickly. Look at those two passages written to two churches at the same time, and they have a parallel point. If you read the end of that passage, you'll see they both state the conclusion. What should these churches do? They should address one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in their heart, always giving thanks in everything to Him. But you notice in Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And in Colossians, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here's the simple point. There is never a conflict between the Spirit of God in the Word of God. There is a never a conflict in what the Word of God is saying and what the, word, the Spirit of God is leading in. Because the Spirit of God is the one who has empowered and worked in man to create the Word of God. Never a conflict. And so then, that means if we want to be filled with the Spirit, if we want to live in such a way that honors Him, and we can know that with authority, we should go to the Word of God. Okay? I could go longer, but we're not Puritans, so sadly. We have such busy schedules. We don't just come here on our horse and buggy all day and go, I don't want to plow my field. It's Sunday. You're like, when are we going to eat? Number three, resolved with spirit-empowered self-control to surrender your affections and desires to the will of God. 
I want you to hear the warnings of Scripture rightly. Proverbs 5, 1 through 13. There are many warnings about sexual immorality, how it robs a man of his strength and his vitality, how it decays him, how it consumes him, how it lies to him, how it promises something sweet, and within the temptation is a hidden hook that will ensnare him and destroy him. You need to believe God what is true about sexual morality. You also need to believe God what is true about right affections, right concern, right pursuits. That's verses 15 through 19, where a man is commanded to stay near to his home, to not give himself and his strength to someone else, but to find his affection, his arousal, his desire, his love, not in a type, not in something physically described, in one woman and her physically described. He doesn't go into explicits of what a man should look for. He says, man, look to your wife. Let her satisfy you. Let her be what intoxicates you. As I said, that mystery of that relationship, which draws you in in a way that you can't even define is a good creation of God. Let your affections, your desires, be defined by what He has said, not by what the world has said. And then lastly, we see the same warning. The warning of 1 Thessalonians 4, the warning of Hebrews 13, 4, and the warning of Proverbs 5. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The reality is the eyes of the Lord are on all mankind. He will not be deceived or confused by the darkness of the world and think you are light enough. He does not look at you if you are his in condemnation or wrath. He looks at you in love and discipline that we dealt with four weeks ago to care for you, to call you, to bring you to be His, to perfect what He has promised to complete in you. Christian, let the reality of the wrath of God strike fear in you, but let it be coupled with the reality of knowing that you have been redeemed in Christ. If that is true of you, you have no reason to fear wrath. You have every reason to long for freedom from sin and glory to Him. Just live to please Him, to honor Him, to obey Him. It is not a license to sin. It is not the freedom to sin. It is the freedom from sin. So I, I pray that you'll hear these truths this morning and it will just be part of all of us recognizing not just the darkness of our society, but the grace of God in all things.